Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor. We've got a special co-host today, Jeff Winnegar. He's an asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Jeff and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Discussion is not tied to the offer of selling investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We have the Dow sitting at record highs. We have the S&P at record highs. Uh, we have the tax bill going through. Uh, we're going to be talking with Professor Siegel to start off the show. Uh, we're going to have two great guests focused on Canada. Nick Shami, who's the Chief Investment Officer of International Wealth Management at Scotiabank, and also uh, Mike Philbrick of uh, Resolve Asset Management. Uh, before we get to them, we are... Uh, Professor, you know, you've been talking about tax reform. It's come through. You know, you've been one of the more optimists that it was going to come through. But um, I hear from f- some other interviews you've been doing that maybe next year not as bright. What's mm-hmm. your sort of current well, thoughts? Well, first of all, the yeah, there's been a little glitch, uh, uh, you know, overnight. And that's why uh, we, you know, we have the futures uh, uh, down a bit this morning. It's everything. I mean, this market is being driven by uh, the tax reform and you know that that it's going to boost if it goes through going to boost earnings at eight percent i mean the glitches are uh, you know this this question of a, a tax trigger i mean um and uh that they uh that that might not be allowed in a parliamentary vote i mean i you know my feeling is is hey vote for it because don't you know, they they they're going to have to reconcile this with the House anyways, and all the senators are going to get to vote for it again. So you know, uh, you don't need your favorite little gimmick uh, to be in right now. Uh, you know, you can say if it's not in later on, uh, you know, I'm going to vote against it, and you have just the same force. But listen, I'm not McConnell and trying to get all those votes together. But uh, you know, that's uh, you know, I would try to uh, I would definitely try to keep uh, this on on track. Uh, also. Uh, in the pocket, I, I still believe that you know if if a, if a few uh, of these deductions are insisted on, maybe the ten thousand dollars on so, so, uh, uh, state and local, and a couple of others, that uh, they will bring the tax uh, corporate tax rate up a, maybe a point when twenty one, maybe twenty two. I know you know the president and others have said no, we're not budging on that. But there's always got to be something in the pocket to give a little bit of money on that, and that still would be a mammoth deduction. Um, and if it would allow more personal deductions, I think it would actually be more popular uh, uh, politically also. So there's a lot of things you know going on. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, I, I think it, it this week has been a good week, despite this glitch uh, this morning and um, uh, and making progress. So. We're definitely seeing that go through. We're also seeing what, you know, we have to look at this. Uh, you know, is it a beginning or rotation? Uh, now, uh, you know, certainly on Wednesday, a big decline in the tech. There's a lot of momentum players uh, in that sector. Of course, now we're talking about momentum players. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin is like par excellence uh, of momentum players uh, and extremely volatile, um, to say the least. But, uh uh, you know, besides that, and I believe that's in a bubble, and uh, you know, it could go to fifteen thousand twenty before it goes to three. But you know, uh, that that's just total speculation. Uh, but in terms of, uh, well, could we see a rotation away from the really strong tech, who has not gotten crazy in valuation, but uh, you know, certain world of the value stocks. Um, uh, has has been stretched. We'll have to see whether that plays out. I mean, that may take a couple of days. It was a few weeks ago. We also had a little move towards uh, away from tech, but then it bounced right back and hit new highs. So it, it, it's uh, it's hard to see. Uh, on next year, yeah, this is what I tell people. I say I think 
it's you know, I think it's going to continue to rise once the tax got signed. It's going to be at its high. And then you've got to say, well, what else is there? <laughs> um, uh, this quarter, it's interesting. A lot, it's sort of schizophrenic because uh, right now the best people on GDP say this quarter is only going to be 2.5% or even lower. Although those people that are looking at some of the, you know, the consumer sentiment and car loadings and all sorts of other things say that we could have a great, great Christmas and that could really boost uh, this quarter uh, through. So we're going to have to see how it plays out. But uh, Q4 is not as strong as Q2 or three, Q3, at least at the beginning of what the data we're, we're getting. Uh, earnings are good, but, you know, it's been built in. Uh, the corporate tax cut will be built in if it gets tax, uh, passed. So next year, I think we get a pause. I mean, we had a huge, we've had a huge bull market. Um, you know, we, we certainly did have a correction uh, uh, 2016 when the oil price collapsed, uh, but we haven't even had a pullback since then. I mean, so, uh, you know, I expect 2018 to be harder. I don't expect a collapse or anything. I don't think there's any general overvaluation. Um, but uh, in the cycles of psychology in the markets, I think uh, I think 18 will be a pause, and it might be a rotation. Not only that, but towards the dividend-paying stocks. Yeah, I mean, when uh, when when Professor Seal gets quoted as the pause, people start saying that's a, a downright pessimistic view there. So no, um, so that's uh, no, it's interesting to hear your your view there. So when you think about those longer-term views from you know where we are valuation-wise, how do you you know maybe you could frame a little bit the 20 PE ratios, what that means to you for forward-looking returns? Yeah, yeah. And, well, I, and what's I, that sort I, of absolutely a 20. Uh, we're, so right now uh, on S and P operating earnings, I think it's the best thing. We're at about 21 times this year. Year, but next year we're about 18. I think the estimates are a bit too high, uh, even with the tax cut. I mean, maybe we're 19. Let's let's just say we're at 20. Uh, 20 represents a 5% real return. Um, we uh, I look at the earnings yield, which is just uh, one over the PE ratio. So one over 20 is 5%. 5% real with a 2% inflation is a 7% return. And that's what I would say is the uh, sort of long-term returns. That's a bit below the historical 6-7, but not much. And 5% real, 7% nominal in a world where the 10-year is, you know, uh, 2.3. I mean, that's, that's very healthy. Um, and I think a lot of investors, if you tell them they're going to get 7% uh, return on equities from this position, that's not what we got this year, of course, uh, or average over this great bull market. But... Uh, I think it's a return that most people would be happy with. So uh, the only thing that could drive it down is if we get a reversion of valuation uh, back down and uh, that we might be partially if interest rates rise aggressively. But, you know, I, I don't think 15 PE is going to be the norm in coming years at all. <laughs> Professor Segal, this is Jeff Weniger, and, yeah. and you know you, you just kind of struck on one of those points that I oftentimes think about. I, I kind of live and sleep on this notion that you just pointed out. You call it two thirty-eight, two thirty-nine on a ten-year T-note. Call it a five percent earnings yield. You know, to back of the envelope at three hundred basis points of, of incremental equity risk premium. If that argument holds for the United States, isn't even that much more compelling for a lot of the developed economies overseas, where the you know a ten-year JGB or a ten-year German Bund is is considerably lower, yeah. uh, yet the the yeah, multiples the in the market. Lower too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say it's even better than what you quoted because uh, the earnings yield is really more properly a real yield, and uh, you know the quote of the ten-year Treasury at two three is nominal, really. Uh, uh, you should you should compare it to the ten-year tips, which is almost zero, um, because you have a real asset on uh, on stocks and you have a real asset on tips. So the premium is even bigger. But you're perfectly right. You have lower yields in Europe and you have lower PE, so that gap is even bigger. And uh, you know, I've been saying for years I've overweighted. Uh, I mean, I, I was favorable towards U.S. equities, but I thought emerging markets and Europe for the longer run represented better values and even today um i i would uh i would say the same um but uh uh yeah i think the premium is actually even higher than that i think it's closer to five percent 
That's great. One, one final question, we'll let you go. I mean, Jeff and I were going back and forth on interest rates and, uh, you know, the consensus being rates are going higher and, and Jeff always likes to go against the consensus. <laughs> What's your sense? Um, is the consensus right in this case? Do you think uh, rates are tricking higher? Or yeah, are we gonna... How many times have we had this false uh, dawn of higher interest rates? Yes. <laughs> Just to fall back. But, but I think, you know, obviously what is one thing keeping yields down is how low they are in Europe, and they have come yeah. up a bit. But, you know, with the uh, German boomed at 33 basis points, the Japanese yen at three basis points, um, uh, you, you know, there's a lot of pull. I mean, you have to think the dollar is very, very overvalued, which it isn't as it's come down to not want to go in treasuries at 2-3 uh, when you got, you got a 2% edge. Uh, on that, but then the other the other factors, you know, we've been driving down that unemployment rate. We don't know whether the natural rate trigger. I mean, it's obviously lower than what the Fed thinks at four seven four eight. But uh, you know, some people are as optimistic as three five. The interesting thing at one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand job growth, and by the way, we're you know we're next Friday we're going to have the jobs number. Uh, we're going to reach three five uh, by the middle toward the end of next year. Uh, and uh, you know, even if then that's the most optimistic of when. I mean, you have to go back, uh, you know, uh, you know, century to to get where that didn't trigger wage increases and some Fed tightening. Um, uh, so you know, my feeling is it might be delayed a little bit longer, but I don't think two three is going to stay. Um, uh, uh, but I also don't think we're anywhere near, you know, I, I've, I've called three and a half to be the top of this cycle, so which is still far, far lower than any of uh, the, the cycles in the last, well, well, almost half century. All right, Professor. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much. We're going to welcome our first guest to the program. He's Nick Shami, uh, Chief Investment Officer of International Wealth Management at Scotiabank. Um, Jeff, I know you've gotten to interact with Nick before. Maybe I'll let you do a little bit more introduction, uh, how you guys got to know each other, and just any background you want to share there about, about Nick. Yeah, we, we were putting on some lunches um, in, in the Toronto area with uh, a bunch of major players on Bay Street. Uh, Nick came. We did a roundtable in the markets and uh, very impressed. This is a a global view, very, very on top of what's going on. Um, the guy brings a ton of things to the table. Nick, welcome to our program. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the very nice introduction. Um, so you, you maybe heard a little bit of the, the, the initial comments from Professor Siegel, just outlook across the markets. Maybe you could give our, our listeners uh, what you do at Scotiabank, your, what you oversee there, and then maybe sort of talk a little bit about how you see you know, the investment world today, what you're, what you're focused on. Sure. Uh, I work on uh, creating a framework for a global tactical asset allocation investment process for Scotia's uh, investing clients. So in that regard, uh, focused on uh, the larger macro trends around the world, understanding the business cycle and market cycles, and laying out a, a reasonable medium-term investment strategy uh, for investors to, uh, to achieve their goals. See, see, Jeremy, this is this is classic behind the markets right here. I mean, this is right up my alley. What I've been looking at for for years. So, it, it, Nick, in terms of of those those global views, are there anything any things that are kind of jumping out at you right now that you're saying that maybe this market is missing? Sure, um, I I believe that uh, one of the things that strikes me about uh, the current uh, discussions around markets is the lack of optimism around the markets and around uh, the global economy. We have a global economy that's not only hitting six, seven-year highs in terms of outright global growth, but the breadth of the growth has improved dramatically over the past couple of years. Growth has broadened out from just beyond the U.S., pulling the rest of the train behind it, to seeing growth percolate higher uh, in all four corners uh, of the world, and in fact, seeing much of the rest of the world outpacing the U.S. and now giving the U.S. a chance uh, to rebalance while the rest of the world does the heavy lifting. This does two things. First, 
It improves the resiliency of the global economy to absorb any shocks uh, that might come its way. But second, it also helps to extend out the duration of the business cycle, the, the moment at which we would face the next recession, and we'll define that by the U.S.'s recession for the rest of the world. So um, I'm a little bit uh, always struck by the lack of optimism sometimes because clearly the markets have run a fair ways recently, but I expect that they'll find continued strong tailwinds at their back over the coming 12 months. Very good. So do you, do you put like targets on the market or you just try to overweight, you know, say equities versus bonds in, in a portfolio setting? Is that sort of, do you, you have like a neutral target allocation, then you go overweight equities? Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't necessarily think that targets serve a a very important purpose in our overall process. Rather, we invest for the circumstances. Um, If the circumstances dictate a certain posturing, then we continue along that path until we have good information in hand to suggest that those circumstances will change sometime soon. And to be honest, we don't see that occurring in the next uh, six to 12 months. Rather, we see, again, with the broadening out of global growth, uh, growth remaining uh, quite uh, healthy, uh, earnings growth remaining near double-digit growth rates uh, across uh, global markets, and uh, modest but yet, yet uh, upward pressure on yields and interest rates continuing over the coming year. Now, a lot of your clients are, you know, I assume, well, you know, if you're based in Canada there, and maybe your maybe your profile maybe goes beyond Canada, but how do you think about asset allocation from like a strategic perspective in terms of balancing, you know, Canadian equities versus foreign equities versus, you know, global, you know, what the, the global mix looks like and, you know, where, where are you suggesting to tilt today? Right. So, of course, there's always home market bias uh, yeah. with any type of investor. Uh, what we aim to do is to provide uh, Canadians and our international clients with a broad global view in order for them to be able to maximize their ability to seek out opportunities in any of the global markets. Uh, With that in mind, uh, our tactical bias is actually to remain overweight the international markets, so beyond the U.S., Um, We see the rotation from interest rate defenses and growth sectors into value sectors and cyclical sectors actually gaining traction in 2018. And that typically means that international markets outperform U.S. markets, given that the U.S. market has the largest uh, growth sectors, technology, consumer discretionary, and healthcare. Uh, on the back of that, we've seen the international markets outperform in 2017. I think the next evolution of the uh, value outperformance will actually be seen in the sectors. So we'll see increasingly uh, financials, industrials, materials, and energy uh, outperforming on a more consistent basis, I believe, in coming months as commodities hold on to these recent gains, uh, the dollar uh, failing to gain much traction, and as I said, uh, the global uh, growth picture remaining quite bright. Yeah, Nick, it's interesting that you mentioned um, those four sectors in particular because in U.S. equities this year, it's got to be 4,000 or 4,500 basis points between tech and energy, you know, this year alone, right. just through the first 11 months, was, you know, plus 35 in tech, negative 10 on energy. And, you know, when you think about those global markets, emerging in particular, um, years ago, emerging was a play on materials and energy, but it has increasingly become, especially in a place like China, a tech story. So are you discriminating at a sector level in the the emerging and or developed exposures? Uh, no, not really. Um, you're right in that, uh, especially out in Asia, technology has become a more dominant sector. It's risen to something close to 20% of the Asian um, sector weightings. 
uh, not too far away from the U.S.'s uh, weightings in the S&P 500. Uh, having said that, uh, clearly those still emerging markets do tend to be more cyclical. Uh, but when we do look at sector preferences, we're looking globally, and uh, as a result, um, having maintained considerable exposure to technology over the last few years, that has included uh, the likes of some of the Asian tech giants as well. Let me just uh, reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Nick Shami, um, who is a portfolio strategist at Scotiabank. Um, you know, and, and we're just talking about your cyclical view. And Canada is very tied to oil, energy, and you know that's you know obviously you just said energy materials is one of your big views. How do you look at what's going on in the oil markets? I mean, there's a lot of politics in the oil markets, and even this week we had the big OPEC, OPEC meeting. Um, but what do you what do you think about what's happening there uh, and how that's f- feeding into the global markets? Sure. Uh, I I want to start off by saying I don't necessarily uh, consider myself a big oil bull. Uh, I think, though, uh, having achieved uh, sort of range-bound pricing in the $55 to $60 range is an enormous success for oil prices and for eventually uh, oil equities. So moving forward, as long as oil stays within this range, I think a lot of uh, repairing can be undertaken uh, amongst the oil sector, and that will uh, help to see uh, oil equities uh, eventually gain traction in the months to come. Uh, but this is broad. This is part of a, a broader cyclical approach. In that, our tactical bias again is to remain with cyclicals. Um, that means also uh, an, out- an overweighting towards value and. Uh, that should help energy uh, to uh, to gain traction over the coming year. But with regards to some of the dynamics within the oil markets, certainly yesterday's news that OPEC and friends have decided to extend out their oil production cut agreement is obviously helping to keep the market, the oil market uh, demand and supply balance. Uh, uh, continuing uh, in a constructive manner. And then you have the uh, possibility of some geopolitical risk and headlines over the coming year with the growing uh, tensions in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran to provide the occasional uh, upward spike in oil prices from time to time. And, and Nick, uh, you made an interesting, um, uh, let's say it a, a euphemism, OPEC and friends uh, you could almost call this organization ROPEC with an R for Russia, which is an, right. you know, <laughs> and and I think the 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 cynic in us would say, well, if you're the Saudi crown prince, um, and you're looking to do a one to two trillion dollar IPO, which would be the equivalent of three to six Exxon Mobiles for Saudi Aramco, um, maybe try to get that oil price to seventy five or eighty, right? Yeah, absolutely. They certainly have all the reasons in the world to to do what they can to keep oil prices as elevated as possible, certainly ahead of an IPO that could uh, dramatically improve their ability to uh, buffer their coffers and undertake some of the transformative change that they've signaled uh, that they want to uh, undertake over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, it. It's a race against time, though, because, of mm. course, the higher they push the oil price, the more economic shell, uh, or rather shale, plays uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere become, and then the, uh, the supply side starts to unravel on you. So there is, I think, some natural uh, upside barriers to how far they can take the oil price or how quickly. But uh, around current levels does seem to be a natural resting point for oil prices at the moment. Great. So, Nick, uh, we, we've covered pretty much good global views here. Um, I want to give you sort of one final question. Um, anything that we haven't talked about, things that you think are on your radar that you think our, our listeners should be really paying attention to or any favorite parts of the market that you think we, we haven't hit on yet? Uh, I, I would just mention that after many, many, many years now of talking about inflation remaining uh, on a downward path, we are starting to get, see some signs that inflation is basing out and starting to turn higher. Now, it will be almost imperceptible on a long-term 
graph to see the move higher, but seeing inflation return closer from 1.5%, closer to 2% over the coming year could, as uh, the professor before me noted, help to, to take yields higher. Uh, that uh, will be an incredibly strong force to see the value uh, trade uh, continuing to outperform. Based on our our best indicators, the most likely period for a recession to start is not likely uh, before mid-2019. So it seems as though this bull market probably still has plenty of legs. And with any upward move in yields, that could help to power the next leg of this bull market. Well, Nick, I appreciate you joining us on the, on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking with Nick Shamid, Chief Investment Officer of International Wealth Management at Scotia Bank. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, along with my guest co-host today, Jeff Winninger. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, joined today by my guest, co-host in the studio, filling in for me, Jeff Winninger, Asset Allocation Strategist at Wisdom Tree. I'm calling in from Tokyo here. Uh, we're bringing in our second guest, Mike Philbrick. He's President and Portfolio Manager at Resolve Asset Management. Uh, prior to co-founding Resolve 2015, Mike was a Portfolio Manager at Dundee Private Wealth, Richardson GMP, McQuarrie Private Wealth. Uh, he's also he was a branch manager at Scotia McLeod, Richard JMP, and Macquarie Private Wealth. Uh, and he's also the co-author of the book Adaptive Asset Allocation: Dynamic Glo- Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad. Uh, I got a chance to meet Mike on our buddy Wes Gray Alpha Architects March for the Fallen uh, back just a few months ago. Um, we all challenged ourselves for a 28-mile hike. Mike, I don't know what we were thinking, but we made it. Man, oh man, amen to that. Yeah. Um, so maybe uh, just maybe give some to our listeners out here. What got you to found Resolve? What uh, made you sort of switch switch paths and, and come together with uh, Adam Butler and and, uh, and and form the firm? Well, a great question. Um, and actually, our, our uh, third partner, Rodrigo Gordillo, um, and and really the the, the genesis of the firm um, started from not being able to find the products that we wanted uh, for our own wealth clients uh, in the marketplace in Canada and only limited products in the U.S. and with no access points to Canada. So, um, you know, we, we basically build and provide adaptive global strategies. Those strategies are designed to thrive in both, uh, uh, both uh, sanguine and hostile markets. And uh, back when we started the process of discovery and finding that about 10 years ago, there just wasn't um, those types of strategies designed in the way that we design them. I mean, the, the thought process that one can uh, be a better stock picker than, than others when you know, 99% of the world's computational power is, is built on picking better stocks in certain indexes uh, seemed like... A, bit of a loser's game, if you will, for, for us. And, and we thought that the, the actual asset allocation decision, which is uh, very, very important, we'll all agree, um, and is uh, something that's not taken advantage of nearly enough. And so really that's, that became the, the focus point and, um, and caused us to think about optimizing portfolios more, uh, more rigorously, more systematically, including more asset classes. And uh, that, that was the journey. Yeah, and Mike, this is Jeff. I'm just thinking about um, you know the U.S. and Canadian businesses. And Morningstar came out with that study back in 2015 that showed that the average Canadian fund, open-end mutual fund, was at charging 2.35. Um, you know, and you just have this 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 massive. Um, mentality shift, really, from this notion that these active managers can select the individual companies, or that the at the advisor level that they can select the individual companies, to more of an idea of you know isn't the bread and butter at the asset allocation level, and it can be done much more cleanly, efficiently, and you actually know what you have. Right, uh, you're exactly right, and, and there's been there's been some evolution too in the world of finance. Um, it, it wasn't possible if we go back to 1995. Um, to facilitate a change in asset allocation, uh, let's say we want to go from uh, 60% stocks and, and 40 bonds to uh, a, a 65-35, we, 
we would have had to sell hundreds of positions and buy hundreds of positions. Today, we can do it with two transactions um, incredibly efficiently, low bid-ask spreads. So the evolution of, of products has allowed for this uh, new way of thinking about markets and portfolios to evolve and become uh, more predominant. Mike, so you guys do a lot of publishing um, at, at investresolve.com, um, and I'm sort of scrolling through some of your posts. Um, maybe talk about you know the the, the the framework you guys use. You know, you're, you're talking about adaptive asset allocation. You also have done a lot of writing on risk parity as a concept, and you sort of proposed one of the other friends that we met at the uh, Wes's March for the Fallen. Ted Seides was there, and you sort of talked about the original Ted Seides bet versus Buffett, and you talked about trying to make a, a new risk parity bet with factors. Maybe sort of talk about that post and how that ties into what Resolve is doing as well. Right. So. It was a great bet by Ted with uh, with uh, Warren Buffett. Um, the problem was the structure of the bet and the fact that he allowed Warren Buffett to uh, structure a European option, if you will, where you know we're gonna we're gonna have today is the start date, and ten years from now we're gonna have a conclusion to the bet, and the journey doesn't matter. You know, it's whoever finishes gets that first finish line first. Who out, whoever outperforms wins. And I mean, the, the bet is a bit ludicrous in, in the first place because it's not helpful to anybody, um, you know, to say to uh, a client or a wealth client, uh, you're going to have a portfolio, you're going to put X money in today, in today and you're going to look at the result 10 years from now and that the journey doesn't matter. Well, that's not necessarily true from a behavioral perspective. And if the portfolio is in, uh, is in decumulation, i.e. you're taking an income from it, we know that that is actually catastrophic if you have a 55% drawdown in the middle. So, you know, the usefulness of the bet is an interesting question. The next thing is, is Ted's allowing, allowing Warren Buffett to structure it as a European option and not consider the journey. What's the risk that you take along the way? And if you, have, um, you know, I don't know this is a fact, but I think if you would have levered Ted's portfolio to the same volatility that the S&P experienced over that period, that you would come out with vastly superior returns for the hedge fund portfolio. And in fact, that is one of the core concepts of risk parity. Um, the idea is that there are, are basically two, um, two economic uh, dynamics that, that are at play in the world. They are inflation and growth. And those two dynamics create four economic regimes, and we, we outline this in a lot of our papers on on, on um, risk parity. And then you're going to want asset exposure, asset class exposure in those four regimes to be approximately equal so that you're never surprised. So in 2008, when you go through a deflationary bust, your portfolio has gold and long-term treasuries, and they do well. They're uh, killing it, as it were. There is other stuff in your portfolio killing you, that being equities at that time, uh, but the risk parity portfolio sort of, you know, uh, sails through those types of periods fairly well because it has a diverse set of bets in the portfolio, and those bets are equal. And so, if you take that portfolio and then lever it up to a 16% volatility, something equivalent to the S&P, uh, you, you'd find you have a very competitive portfolio uh, that, on a risk-adjusted basis, is going to, um, you know, likely outperform the S&P over time. And then if you just add a few factors, layer some investment factors on top, maybe let the portfolio be informed by uh, some momentum measures, uh, maybe take some thoughtful approaches to the portfolio construction. I think you can be fairly confident that, you know, over a 10-year period, uh, you can win a, you win a bet against Warren Buffett. Um, let me just reintroduce our guest. We are talking with Mike Philbrick. He's the co-founder and portfolio manager at Resolve Asset Management, one of the co-founders. Um, Mike was just outlining fa um, factor investing using risk parity. Mike, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the show Wes and I actually recently did with Rich Wiggins, and he was talking about um, actually risk parity, and he actually has a concept called anti-risk parity, where he wants to do the opposite of risk parity because he says, you know, you get these big sell-offs, um, in the market and you where your sort of markets are falling but equity premiums are going up and you're sort of de-risking portfolios because markets are falling and similar like in, in the taper tantrum of 2013 interest rates are spiking and that sort of that would have been a good time to add to bond portfolios not to subtract from bond portfolios even though bond volatility is rising what do you think about his anti-risk parity concept uh, first of all, I, I, I can't believe I missed that. I'm a huge fan <laughs> when you have Wes on. And you, uh, Last and week. You bring, 
the guy's <laughs> on, so, so damn it. Anyways, um, I, I think he's Wait a minute, wait a, a minute, Jeremy. Are we thinking maybe we should have a wager? Uh, Just like the Buffett wager? <laughs> I, I can smell notoriety right here. There you go. <laughs> uh, so, so, so the interesting thing is, I, I would love to, I've got to listen to it, and I've got to get a little bit deeper into what, what his thoughts are. But generally speaking, I, I think it all works, as long as you're disciplined about the way you approach the problem. Um, and, and this plays into the, the understanding of the different types of risk parity. So there are pro-cyclical risk parity strategies and counter-cyclical risk parity strategies. And as an example, um, you know, Bridgewater runs a counter-cyclical uh, risk parity strategy, mm. as far as we can determine from reading their, their literature, which is to say that they perceive structural relationships between the asset classes and the regimes, the economic regimes, and they actually uh, serve as a counterweight in portfolios. So they are not actually um, selling those assets down that are, are having those increases in volatility. They're actually accumulating them. And so the type of risk parity is very important here. Are you a, are you a counter-cyclical or a pro-cyclical? Think of that in the, uh, in the stock domain. So a counter-cyclical investor is a value investor. He is buying when the market is selling. Generally, the larger the portfolio manager is, the more likely they are to be counter-cyclical. And the smaller they are, the more likely they are to be pro-cyclical because um, the fact is that, that they have the portfolio agility to do so. If you're pro-cyclical and huge, uh, you can actually be you know, reinforcing your own trade. Um, for us, our, our take on risk parity is more of a pro-cyclical one. So, you know, we do uh, take more recent observations. We do slant towards um, some momentum factor in our risk parity solutions and strategies. Um, but but he, he raises a good point, And uh, without knowing more, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say he's, uh, he's wrong. He's, he's probably right. He self-declaimed it as crazy. And I said, you said crazy. I'll call it genius. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, right. It, remember the uh, the paper from um, uh, from I believe it was either Research Affiliates or AQR where they where they took all of the factors, the investment factors, and they yep. turned them upside down backwards, and yep. they ended up outperforming. Absolutely. Right. So it, it's a it's a, it can be a strange world. It's the question is, do you have the discipline to stick with the strategy? You know, I think yep. I think something that um, Jeremy Siegel mentioned earlier was very interesting about, and everybody's myopically focused on the valuations of U.S. stocks. Mm -hmm. People, that's only 25% of global market capitalization. If you would like to buy a beautiful value portfolio, let's set you up with a portfolio that includes the Czech Republic, Russia, Turkey, Brazil, Spain, and Portugal. You are going to buy a wonderful basket of extremely cheap stocks. Who has the intestinal fortitude to do that and to hold whilst all their friends are partying like it's 1999. Yeah, not any client base I've ever seen. And, and you know, right. Mike, one of the things I wanted to kind of ask you is, you know, really going back to, boy, the Second World War, I mean, there's only been a few spells of inflation and, uh, you know, t- kind of thinking about various regimes and positioning and the way the metrics may look for, you know, positioning for a cyclical or counter-cyclical environment. But I mean, going back to the Carter administration is really only kind of example you can find of a accelerated inflation in the, in, in the United States. And, and how do you incorporate thinking about the performance of equities or fixed income when it's not a realistic scenario for us to ever, you know, at least in the near term, be looking at 10, 15 percent short and long rates. Right. Well, you know, our, our perspective is, is one that is, if you think about the world from a risk parity perspective, that, that question sort of answers itself. You're going to have assets in the portfolio that do well in that stagflationary period uh, with low growth. I mean, during the 70s, the real return to a balanced portfolio was negative. Mm-hmm. At the same time, gold compounded at 24% real over that 10-year period, and commodities compounded at about 14% real. And in these portfolios, what, what kind of overall commodities exposure are we looking at? Well, what you do is you dynamically allow those, those portfolios. If, if you're going to impart some momentum to your risk parity portfolio, mm-hmm. you're going to dynamically allow that position to increase. Um, but let's say you're not. You're not going to take that bet. Uh, you're not going to increase that bet. Well, a 
quarter of your portfolio is going to be positioned to thrive in a, a, an inflationary stagflation period where you've got low growth and, and inflation that's occurring above what the expectations are in the marketplace. And so at least you've got some of the portfolio that's thriving during that period. Um, you're also going to do well with tips. Um, you know, commodities, gold did well. Tips didn't exist back then. They mm-hmm. weren't an asset class that we point to. But structurally, we know uh, that there is a relationship there we can count on, right? It's, uh, we like to call it the skis and bikes analogy, right? It, we have stores in Canada that sell both skis and bikes. And no matter how good, you know, ski sales are in July, they're just not going to be as good as the bike sales. And that's the idea of risk parity. We've got these four seasons. We've got things that work in each of those four seasons. And now the, now the key is to make sure your bets are of equal magnitude, not based on capital, but based on risk. And this is where you start to have to encompass some leverage in risk poor parity in order to equalize your bets, right? A, a $20 investment in U.S. Treasuries is not the same uh, risk as a $20 investment in emerging market stocks. And so you're going to want to equalize those those bets, as it were. When um, when you look at your client base, Mike, when you're uh, people who are looking at at um, risk parity type strategies, I mean, is this how would you describe them? Are are you finding people, um, you know, using a type of online robo type advisor, or are P, are you going through traditional financial advisors? How who's coming to risk parity? And and I'm just worried. I'm wondering about you know what they think of the the leverage that you take and how how they're thinking about that. Uh, exactly. So so from a client base, it's 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 everybody. I would say um, if there was a theme to our wealth book, so we do have a, a robo that operates or an online advisor that operates in the U.S. Um, and those clients who come to us there are very sophisticated. I would almost say to some degree though, those clients are you know I'm tired of knowing more than my advisor, and, and so that's yeah. a theme that we get. And so they're looking for something, and it's not usually actually risk parity for them. They're more interested in adaptive asset allocation. They are willing um, to let the portfolio have more of a momentum influence. So whereas risk parity is going to hold all the asset classes in our adaptive asset allocation uh, portfolios and strategies, we will eliminate asset classes altogether, focus on momentum, and then maximize diversification. And then, so, so the concept of leverage to these sophisticated individuals is, is not usually foreign. Uh, it does take some, some education. We do have a, a paper called uh, Yes, You Can Eat Sharp, something that you hear folks talk about in our uh, domain is, oh, yes, that's a wonderful, you know, uh, max sharp portfolio, but the returns aren't high enough for me to actually meet my financial goals. So our industry says just take more equity risk. And as you uh, quite succinctly pointed out, in the 1970s, taking more equity risk is not going to work for a very long period of time. And we may or may not be in for a period like that. I have no idea. I'm not going to make a prediction on that, on that. But we'd like to be at least prepared and able to adapt around that and have some success um, based in any environment that we might be in. Uh, so that's on the robo side. Um, we, are, we are getting pretty consistent institutional interest in, in the strategies. And I would say... Uh, you know, the, the key thing there is, is the person or is the person or investor already invested in these types of strategies? Do they view the world from this particular uh, vantage point? And if they do, they, they look at the world from a global perspective. Uh, they understand that diversification is the only free lunch. So you're going to want to really, really lever that diversification opportunity. And they're not afraid to take uh, a little bit of leverage on in order to meet their risk targets. Remember, this is just this is capital market line stuff. This is efficient frontier and capital market line math. It is not necessarily that new. Uh, it's it's um, it's implementation. I think is extremely important in how you do it and how you go about that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we write and share so much is because we, we want people to understand how we view the problem and how we how yeah. we would mm. propose an optimal solution. Let me just reintroduce our guest again. We're talking with Mike Philbrick, President and Portfolio Manager at Resolve Asset Management. He was just talking about his adaptive asset allocation. How, when you talked about momentum running the portfolio and getting more concentrated, um, how, how directly concentrated will you get um, in terms of narrowing down from a broad strategic allocation to, towards these specific things that you're letting run so if you take risk parity we're going to own you know um, pretty much 96 
5% of the world's global market cap. And we're going to be balancing back to those, uh, those regimes as we discussed. And uh, in adaptive asset allocation, we can, we can bring that down to a fairly concentrated portfolio. Um, it can get down to you know, three or four asset classes globally. Um, in, a, in a most concentrated uh, position. Uh, currently, we're seeing uh, emphasis on the equity side of the uh, ledger. We're seeing um, uh, great trends in uh, emerged Asian uh, markets, emerging markets, U.S. equities, European equities. Um, you're seeing pretty good trends in all of those markets, and, and thus they are an emphasis in our adaptive asset allocation portfolios. But that does change. Right. So yeah. make sure you're considering all your options, consider all the asset classes out there um, and then have a have a strategy that you've uh, you've mapped out and is well articulated in advance of the changes in the market. So, you know exactly what you're going to do when various changes uh, come along and then execute. You know, Mike, this is um, an interesting conversation we're having at this particular moment. Late 2017 bonds have been running for how long stocks have been running since you know oh nine um you know even even the commodities complex which was down and out has has gotten a bid for two years running at this point and i think that in the next five or ten years there's going to be a lot of people that um are going to be caught off guard when they realize that the next five or ten might not be anything like the previous five or ten and so the question is really what type of profile is the person that is not well prepared and could be walking into um, you know an oscillating market or just a low return environment and doesn't really quite have their portfolio prepped for it? Well, that's a really good question. I would say, uh, as you point out, the sixty forty portfolio um, has had one of its most yeah. amazing runs. We are uh, we are uh, you know without a ten percent drawdown in the sixty forty since 2010 mm-hmm. you know the the vast majority of of um of folks who you know that that's 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 a pretty significant chunk of time and so uh what happens to investor behavior and their outlook they just get more and more confident you know it is literally the the story of the turkey um that nasim telab tells um, you know the idea that the, the turkey just gets more and more comfortable with the farmer because the farmer treats him so well, he shoes the foxes away, and he actually even starts to feed him more as we come into November. And we, we kind of know that that's not a good thing. So I would, you know, those portfolios that are um, really home country biased and aren't allowing the portfolio to take advantage of uh, some of the opportunities globally and some of the opportunities in other asset classes, I think you've got to start thinking about diversifying outside of um, your home country uh, in the U.S., uh, and I would say the same thing in Canada. Uh, we did a piece, um, the swan song for U.S. equities, cyclical measures. We did that back in January of uh, 2017, and we just pointed out over the past three, six, and nine years, U.S. equities have been you know, the only game in town. We're not suggesting go to a zero allocation on that, but we are seeing uh, the evolution of new trends. We're seeing um, markets like uh, emerging markets, Europe, um, emerged Asia, all outperform uh, U.S. equities over the last uh, year. So that that's mm-hmm. telling you something. I don't I don't think there's a lot of fear out there. We're kind of in that that great part of the story where there's not a whole lot of um, negative um, um, surprises uh, that, that on on the on the sort of the forward looking piece of the market. Well, probably the biggest concern is there's not really a lot of things that can derail the market. If you you know sort of take out a nuclear strike from Korea or something nonsense right. something like that. And, and what about the what about the business market. itself? I mean, you know, look, take yourself out to the, the end of next decade and look back at ten years. You know, it's now the year 2030, and kind of look back and say. You know, these were the these were the industries that were well prepared for for the the changes we've seen changes on the fee structure side in the business. You're seeing a lot of boutique types like yourself you know, gathering assets. What is it that's going to be the major upheaval that are going to catch people off guard in, in the business? Ooh, that's a good question. I think I think the the whole robo or online advisor is going to continue to gather enormous amount of of momentum and assets. And that, that is really just a delivery system, right? The delivery system is catching up to the Amazonification of the world. 
And, and so why wouldn't we be interacting through an online portal for our investment portfolios? Um, you know, I'm not sure yet that we, we, we can't be conclusive in that that's going to provide more disciplined investors. I, I kind of would, you know, err on the side it probably won't um, when things get really tough. Uh, but I do think that there's going to be this continued um, um, technological interface with the investment world and that the uh, advisors, all advisors are going to have to adapt to that and, and sort of the rules of be, having a good relationship, right? If we go back to the 90s, um, you know, you dealt with someone you knew, uh, maybe maybe you were on, you're, you're the parents on the same uh, uh, hockey team or mm-hmm. soccer team or football team, and there was a great deal of, of relationship there. I still think there'll be a great deal of relationship there, but the nature of the relationship is going to evolve. And if we look to other leading industries, um, that have already gone through this process. I don't think financial services is going to be immune to it. I think it's it's probably a place where we're behind quite a bit. And uh, and and kudos to Wisdom Tree with um, you know with their work with Credible. And uh, you know I think that that uh, that is that is something that really needs to uh, take get more traction across the board for all professional investors, whether they be institutional, uh, registered investment advisors, and so on. Very good. Mike, so we have just a few minutes left with you. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot of different topics here. Um, we've got maybe three minutes. Where, what, uh, anything that you're focused on from you know, Resolve's point of view that you want to make sure that people listening in um, get to hear you for, with things that they, they should uh, come to you for? Um, sure. I mean, again, we are uh, global systematic strategy uh, providers. And I would say that the the, the, the most interesting thing about being disciplined in that regard is that you're going to find yourself in portfolios that, um, that are unique and different and don't yet have a narrative. And then, and then you'll see people build the narrative as to why a portfolio should look like that. When you, when you stay away from narratives and, and run portfolios more systematically based on the math, you find yourself in and actually out of asset classes and portfolios before sort of the the common uh, uh, consciousness in the, in the investment world reaches that. We certainly found that in the past year as we were, you know, well positioned in, in Europe and emerged Asia and emerging markets, um, you know, sort of, sort of long before the common consciousness started to think about it. That does create some behavioral bias too and, and issues and challenges. But, you know, if, if you're looking to uh, prioritize investment success versus investment comfort, you know, we're sort of your guys. And I always, you know, the question with investing is, do you want to be successful or do you want to be comfortable? They're not the same thing. Investment success kind of lives where you're less comfortable. Yep. And uh, on that last comfortable note, you know, you and I both started talking after the March for the Fallen. We want to recruit for next year. Any lessons from the March for the Fallen in that uncomfort vein that you want to help do some more recruiting for next year's event? Oh, my God, yes. First of all, it is just an incredible event, and kudos to Wes and his team for organizing it. It's grown tremendously, and I'll bet this event will be thousands of people uh, in the coming years. I love the way... uh, um, Wes called it a haze X. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I made the one crucial mistake and anyone out, li- out there listening, it's certainly very achievable, but do not wear running shoes <laughs> Wear solid hiking shoes. I think Wes tricked me, you know, he's like, the, the, it's, you know, you mostly you're just walking on gravel roads and, and, you know, some <laughs> paved roads before the walk. And I'm like, I've got my hiking shoes, but I decided to go with the runners because I thought yep. they'd be, my feet were like balloons. They were beat to, to hack. Yep. Well, well and, mine are still just recovering still. I still have a blister <laughs> and I was in the same boat as you. So we can, we can both live that up. Mike, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. We talk with Mike Philbrook of Resolve Asset Management. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Jeff, thanks for joining us in the studio. Got it. Have a great week, everybody. See you next week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.